0: Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University, and currently a visiting fellow with the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at Hong Kong University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs.
1: Today we're doing an emergency podcast from Hong Kong, one day after police fired more than 150 rounds of tear gas at protesters who were demonstrating against a controversial extradition law. 72 people were left injured after a day of brutal police behaviour. The violence came just three days after a march that one million Hong Kongers participated in. One in seven of the population.
0: Today we'll have scenes from yesterday's protest and we'll also be hearing from Jeffrey No of Demzisto and lawyer Anthony Daperin, who wrote a book on dissent in Hong Kong. Louisa has been in Hong Kong and has been at all the protests. Louisa, can you describe the switch in mood from the one million person march on Sunday to the violence we saw yesterday?
1: It's actually the largest march there's been in Hong Kong since 1989, when a million people took to the streets uh, to show their support for protesters in mainland China. On Sunday, it was, you know, it was a massive turnout. And because of police tactics then, it just lasted a really long time. Uh, they had kind of kettled protesters so that uh, there's some of the lanes of the highways hadn't been closed and that just meant that often people were standing still or moving really really slowly and that a march which often you know in all normal circumstances would take an hour or two was taking four or five hours so that really led to this these sort of extraordinary scenes where it looked like uh the whole of hong kong was out on the street wearing white Uh, the sort of river of white. Uh, Yesterday's protest was a little bit different. There were a lot of people there, but it wasn't marching. People were just kind of milling around and uh, waiting for something to happen. And then around three o'clock in the afternoon, that was when things kicked off. But just before they did, I spoke to a man and I really started by asking him why he was there.
2: Mm, I came out for my children, for <laughs> and, children? My, and, uh, and my uh, children's you? future.
1: How old are your children?
2: Um, one of them are five and then the other are, uh, about one and a half
1: um, years old. What do you think the extradition law means for your children? I want them to live
2: in a the, the, uh, free uh, country and not, not um, afraid of the, uh, the control by China.
1: Do you think, do you think this protest will work? Uh, Five years
2: ago <laughs> it's not working.
1: <laughs> so why would it work now?
2: And, but, but this time and, and it, it's, it's uh, relatively simple because because they, they just control the the the, uh, the meetings uh, of the uh, of the controller. Uh, it's it works with the, uh, easier, than, easier than before. They, they just control this, the air, this area and, then, and the government cannot, cannot hold a meeting.
1: And did you come out five years ago?
0: Yes. So Louise, you were also there in 2014 for the Umbrella Movement. What was the difference between the mood back then and what we saw yesterday?
1: Well, I was only there for the very end of the umbrella movement, and the mood then was very kind of positive. People were on a high. Uh, it felt like the whole of Hong Kong had kind of come together and created what people kept describing as a kind of utopia. These, you know, uh, encampments in in these encampments in these main streets where people were camping out for 79 days with you know places where people could do homework where students could do their homework and recycling stations yesterday was different yesterday the mood felt a lot darker I think people were expecting that there would be a very violent response from the government and uh, right from the beginning, when you arrived, people were handing out goggles um, for tear gas, masks uh, to put over the mouth to protect people from tear gas. And then when it came, uh, the tear gas was quite intense. Uh, In 2014, at the start of the Umbrella Movement, they fired 87 rounds of tear gas. Yesterday, it was 150 rounds that were fired into the crowd, and there was a lot of sort of panic, thousands of people running back and forth, trying to get out of the way. And um, I'm going to play you a piece of tape from yesterday, where two cameramen who had just run away from the tear gas described how it felt. I've
3: had tear gas before that, that, that burned a lot. That wasn't it, tear it, gas? It, it, it is tear gas, but it's like fucking way stronger. Your eyes are fucking burning.
1: Do you know? Because it looked like there was a lot of it being fired over there. At least yeah, five. Five?
4: Yeah. You hear the pop. They're, they're gonna randomly, they, they've already randomly attacked some of the people.
1: So they're, are they cleaning some, clearing from there down, or what's going on <coughs> over there? Well, you, know, you can't tell? No, oh, he's,
0: again. he's here again.
1: So you again. So you were seeing them attacking people? Yeah. Sure bathrooms mm-hmm.
0: Square?
1: Mm-hmm. That oh, guy's oh, 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 oh. easy to climb
2: up there. Oh,
1: oh, oh, oh. Are you surprised at the use of force by the police tonight?
2: Yeah, sure. No one would expect that it would uh, the protesters would escalate like that. And no one would expect that how uh, strong the police react to the protesters. But I guess we get, we have to go. <laughs> Mm. so we have to go.
1: Were you here five years ago in Occupy? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so do you feel this time it's different?
2: Um, I think it's similar, but the, uh, what we uh, go for is not it's not different anymore.
1: But in the response? Yes.
2: It's similar, but the police is stronger.
1: This time? Yes. OK, how do you feel to see the police using these tactics?
2: Uh, worried. Anxious and afraid. I, don't think, I, think, I think we have...
4: Uh, okay,
1: okay. can I take one in case? Thank you. To, uh, can I just ask one more question? Yeah. Do you think you can continue to oppose the extradition law given the amount of force forced sure
2: We will try our best to, to express our opinion. I guess
4: that's it. Okay, Do you contact you. the British government <laughs> to help the situation? Because Hong Kong used to be part of the UK, like, I think like in the 19s something, but now the China is raping us. They literally is raping us. Yeah, they take away our privilege. Actually, this is not a privilege. This is a humanity, right? Do you? Yeah. And the Prime Minister in Hong Kong, up to this moment, she still refused to answer any question.
1: The Chief Executive Carrie Lam.
4: Yeah, Carrie Lam like, bullshit. Ridiculous, ridiculous. <laughs>
1: Is there any way to go move forward, given the amount of force used against Hong Kong people today?
4: Uh, I think no, we will stay peace. We don't want to go any violence. Yeah.
1: So you think the violence has been one way, just the
4: because... It is one way, but I don't think any of us will want to see a brush shed. Yeah.
1: But the... Hong Kong government is saying, is calling the protest a riot. Is that fair?
4: No, absolutely no.
1: I mean, I'm just wondering what you saw from here, whether you thought the amount of force being used by police is appropriate or not. Oh, of course it's not appropriate. If we We have have the right, we should complain to the police department, you know, because they are over abuse the power. How many injured people have you seen being stretched out
4: Few people was uh, sent to the ambulance, and um, there's an ambulance he, there. He said that he see a he see a patient, but the the, the police tried to uh, catch him and then stopped the ambulance car to go inside to pick up him.
1: I mean, do you, did you ever think that you would see this kind of behavior by the Hong Kong police force? Well, they're quite common. They are very common in into the, uh, abusive their power. Um,
4: they have no dignity, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, They have no integrity because they're just using their force I just to think
1: uh,
4: them, I mean the large group of people, is the uh, most patient, you know. They watch, didn't do
1: anything. You can take the pictures of yeah. them. Oh my God. They're marching. They're marching back no, now, aren't they? Mm-hmm. But what, I mean, what do you think this is going to mean? This is a turning point for Hong Kong. There's never been this kind of...
2: Yeah. This time is even yeah. even more than t- 2014, yeah. much more and all protesters yeah. are much more aggressive this time.
1: It, they're so aggressive. I mean, their message is so clear, no more protests, right? right. Do you think it will work? But Do you Hong think Kong Hong Kong people will be scared by this?
2: I'm not sure. But I, I heard a lot of young people say, this is the end game. This is the end game of Hong Kong. Which is, which, is like, which is similar to the meaning of the Avengers Endgame. This is the, what, what Hong Kong people are facing. After this, um, this law passed, we will be the same as China. Hong Kong will become a place that traps everyone back to China. If you do something that China uh, PRC
0: don't like you, Louisa, what's been the Hong Kong government's response to Wednesday's events?
1: So the government's response has been multifaceted and it's really ended up angering people even more. So the police commissioner, Stephen Lowe, called the protest a riot. That designation really upset a lot of people because it had been very, very peaceful until the moment that tear gas was fired. And then last night, the chief executive, Carrie Lam, issued a couple of videos, and they were quite tearful. Um, She said that she would never sell out Hong Kong and that she'd suffered for Hong Kong. And people really saw her as sort of shedding crocodile tears, and they felt that she was insincere. So people are very angry, people are very distrustful, and there's this new mood where people are fearing the police and are actually really so spitting mad at the police. Um, You know, I was there yesterday watching as people were upbraiding the police, almost crying, screaming at them, aren't you Hong Kongers as well? And that has continued today. Um, There's also a great deal of distrust at the government. Uh, Yesterday we were seeing people who were buying single tickets to get away from the uh, site of the protest because they feared that their movements were being tracked. And that kind of mood is increasing. Today there were reports that three protesters were arrested in hospital while receiving treatment. So the population is extremely unhappy at the moment, and that's likely to continue.
0: Yeah, I mean, to someone that doesn't know the background to it very well, some of the tactics being used by police seem really over the top. I mean, the use of rubber bullets, for example, is that something Hong Kong's seen before?
1: I don't think so. Um, I mean, the whole thing has been extremely shocking to Hong Kong people. People here are used to seeing their police force as one of the finest in Asia, And that perception was chipped away at during the Umbrella Movement. Now it's completely gone.
0: To provide some context to yesterday's protest, Louise is joined by Anthony Daparan, Hong Kong-based author of City of Protest, a recent history of dissent in Hong Kong.
1: Now, first of all, I just want to ask you about the extradition bill itself. Uh, This is being framed as an existential threat to Hong Kong's judicial independence. Is it really that bad?
5: I wouldn't go as far as saying it's a threat to Hong Kong's judicial independence. It's certainly blurring the line between the Hong Kong justice system and the mainland judicial system uh, in a way that it hasn't been done before. Uh, This new bill would permit uh, people that the mainland considers to be criminal suspects to be extradited to face criminal trials in the mainland, in the mainland court system. Um, That's something that currently isn't possible. Just the fact that you have a a, a conduit that enables people in Hong Kong to be uh, taken within the the scope of the mainland criminal justice system is something that um, gives people a lot of cause for concern. The government has said there are a lot of safeguards built into the bill, um, including safeguards such as the fact that uh, political crimes are excluded, um, the crimes that um, would be subject to extradition under the bill must be criminal both in Hong Kong and in the mainland and they therefore argue that would prevent political prisoners, effectively political suspects, being extradited. But the reality is that um, you know, very rarely would a, a state, including China, openly say that they're prosecuting someone for a political crime. Uh, for example, the the booksellers, uh, Gueminhai Minhai was being uh, taken back to the mainland to face old traffic offence charges. The other booksellers were allegedly um, detained for breaching the import-export rules. So, uh, And
1: you're talking about the Hong Kong booksellers, five of them, who disappeared and reappeared mm-hmm. mysteriously in China facing these various charges. Is.
5: Yes, that's right. So the, the allegation or the, the understanding is they were effectively abducted off the streets of Hong Kong by, or, or Thailand in the case of Minhai by mainland security apparatus. And people are concerned that um, this extradition bill would give a, a veneer of legitimacy to those kind of activities by uh, having, having that happen through the Hong Kong court system
1: and at this stage in time despite the 1 million people taking to the streets the chief executive has said that she will not back down i mean given the way that the legislature is uh, formed in hong kong which is basically always allows for more pro establishment and pro democracy legislators is there any way this bill can now be stopped
5: uh, not if the government wants to force it through. Uh, one of the really important things that the the, the pro-Beijing camp in the legislature did uh, after the government uh, disqualified a bunch of the pro-democracy legislators a couple of years ago was to change the rules of procedure of LegCo, which uh, would effectively prevent filibusters. Um, and so that has really... Put them in a position where they can force through pretty much any legislation that they want to, um, if they want to do that and, and disregard the, the will of the people as expressed by the, the million people marching on Sunday.
1: And the other thing that we've seen is this designation that yesterday's second round of protests were a riot. I mean, what does that mean? What's the legal consequence of that?
5: Uh, that's, an, that's an extremely important distinction um, simply because the criminal penalties for rioting are so much heavier than the criminal penalties for um, a, an illegal public assembly uh, so uh, the, the Mong Kok riot as it's been called that happened a couple of years ago um, in Mong Kok, which led to the jailing of Edward Leung a, a famous uh, activist here in Hong Kong uh, were under the, the, the rioting offences and they, they are much heavier um, penalties sort of up to you know, several years in jail um, and so anyone taking part in a riot could be subject to to significant jail terms. So that distinction is is a really important one that that is made. Now, there's a bit of uncertainty as to whether the police sort of did indeed say riot or was it disturbance and some queries around what they meant. Um, But if indeed they decide to prosecute this as a riot, then that means the consequences for anyone who took part are are much greater. Um, It really does raise the stakes.
1: I mean, for me, I can't help thinking of... The April 26th editorial in 1989, which designated the protests then turmoil. It seems Mm -hmm. almost something from the same playbook.
5: Yeah, there are some uncanny parallels. And indeed, a lot of the way that the Hong Kong government's been handling this, I think it's fair to call, crisis um, does seem to be a very um, mainland style of governance, as opposed to the kind of governance we would have expected from a, a city like Hong Kong.
1: And then the other query that I have about the legal aspects is, it seems like after the trial of the Umbrella Nine, I mean, at that time, people were put in jail for public order offenses that really dated back to the colonial era, mm-hmm. incitement to public assembly. Is that right? An incitement to incite. Mm-hmm. What does that now mean for people who are out on the streets
5: yeah what was interesting about those prosecutions was not just the charges but the fact that the government really chose to pursue them so aggressively I mean certainly um, you know there've been a, a long history of 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 protests in Hong Kong over the years, and not all of them strictly within the bounds of, of the public order ordinance. Um, usually what's happened is that people have been arrested at the end of those and then released without charge and, and everyone has moved on. Um, what really marked the Umbrella Movement prosecutions was that the government went after protesters uh, very aggressively, and in particular, the leaders of the protesters. Um, and so we now have uh, both you know Benny Tai and, and Chan Kin Man, for example, um, in jail as we speak, serving their sentences for their role in um, you know, acting as figureheads of, of that movement. What has that, that meant for the protesters now? I think they're all very conscious of that, very aware of that, and um, very careful about avoiding any appearance of there being any kind of centralised organisation or leadership of the current protests. So the, the thing that I think was most striking about um, yesterday's protest compared to the umbrella movement in 2014 was everyone was occupying the same stretch of road, but in 2014 there was a stage in the middle with a um, megaphone um, and very clearly uh, defined leadership who were giving instructions and in coordinating the protests. Uh, yesterday, there was, there was no central stage. There were a, one or two ad hoc megaphones around the place, but certainly no clear leaders. And it seemed to be um, fairly obvious that the protesters were keenly aware to uh, avoid the possibility of being, as you say, arrested for inciting or inciting to incite and, and attracting um, the legal consequences of doing that.
1: So if there was anyone now who was to call for people to take to the streets once more, that could be seen as an incitement, right?
5: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Some, anyone doing that would be really exposing themselves to, to, to the government coming after them and prosecuting them. It seems like the government would uh, would not hesitate in doing that, at least in, in the current climate.
1: So I mean, your book is called City of Protest. Mm. Can Hong Kong still be a city of protest now, given, given these latest developments?
5: Uh, It certainly seems that the government's behavior over the last couple of years has been aimed at 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 doing just that, at at slowly tightening the screws on dissent, on um, cutting out uh, potential channels of of, of dissent and means of dissent, and perhaps, yeah, trying to end Hong Kong's um, position as a city of protest. But what I think was really interesting about the protests yesterday was firstly that they happened anyway, um, and that they happened on such a large scale and such a a seeming degree of organization without there being any clear organization, Um, whether that was happening uh, sort of off the are um you know uh, you know in for example in, in encrypted chat groups online or um you know or otherwise or, or just sort of organically the protesters drawing on their experience from past past protests um uh, who knows but um it, it seems that um, you know so far the government haven't been successful in, in shutting them down
1: and um, Hong Kongers are very good at being creative mm-hmm. with their protests I remember after umbrella there was a series of shopping protests and then there were the carol singers who went out to sing pro-democracy christmas carols Mm. and even today i've seen people doing silent protests standing on a footbridge with these signs saying um, stop shooting hong kong students Mm. and just standing there holding them in front of police do you think that's what we'll see just a, a different kinds of protests maybe smaller rolling more innovative protests
5: Yes, I think so. Um, I guess two other examples that sprang to mind. uh, In order to get people to rally to the site yesterday, the suggestion was circulating online that people should come and have a picnic in Tamar Park yesterday. Um, Again, obviously a code for protesting, but a a neat way of putting it. Um, And I I think the, the nature of the current situation where the protests are are uh, effectively reactive to the Legislative Council's meeting agenda means that they can very much disperse um, and then reassemble whenever a meeting is called, wherever a meeting is called, um, given that there are obviously pro-democracy legislators um, who are in the Legislative Council. They will be able to pass information on when and where meetings are happening you know, to, to, to their supporters, and they'll be able to reassemble very quickly and, and move from place to place potentially the other creative means of protest that um, people could begin to explore, and we saw this starting to make its appearance over the last few days, is uh, through both strikes and boycotts. Uh, There were widespread calls for a general strike on Wednesday. Um, While that didn't um, emerge fully, certainly many small businesses and independent businesses declared that they would close down for the day. And many large companies, including um, a couple of the major banks, including the big four accounting firms and other large companies, um, an insurance company also I know of, um, declared that they would effectively allow um, flexible working arrangements for their staff on that day, which is really code for, you know, if you don't want to come into the office and go and protest, you know, we're, not going to, we're going to turn a blind eye to that. Um, so that, that's sort of the first. And the second is boycotts. There was a, a, a list circulating online of businesses um, whose, whose owners or controlling shareholders or, 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 or management um, were supporting the government's bill and with the suggestion that consumers should, should boycott these businesses. That's something that, um, you know, boycotts haven't really been tried on a large scale in Hong Kong before. And a general strike action we haven't seen since 1967 when the, the pro Beijing um, Federation of Trade Unions organized a, a mass general strike against the British colonial administration. But if those were things that were able to um, gather up steam at the grassroots, that, that would be a, a completely new um, a way of, of expressing dissent and protesting in Hong Kong.
1: And i noticed that still, despite everything, despite the tear gas, despite the rubber bullets, despite the 72 injuries, there's still a lot of people out there. There's still a lot of young people. I mean, they're picking up rubbish today and cleaning up. But they're definitely out there. There were trucks that were unloading supplies. And there was a kind of new mood of sort of anger and despair and just determination. I mean, do you think what has happened has effectively alienated an an entire generation?
5: Yes, I think just like as happened in the Umbrella Movement, where we saw um, that entire generation of youth come out in force to... To vote for the the Spiration and Demosisto legislators in the in the subsequent Legislative Council elections, um, you know, uh, because of their alienation with the process, I'm sure again that the, the similar young generation have been alienated through what's happened in the last few days. The determination is is a really striking point, I and mean, even yesterday, amidst the, the the tear gas and rubber bullet attacks, um, I was you know, down in among the crowd, observing that. Um, uh, you know, as soon as the the, the the tear gas sort of stopped, the crowd that had dispersed would immediately reform and and, and regather to you know chanting to each other, you know, Hong Kong and let's go, Hong Kongers, which was really um uh, very um, moving. On the flip side, the other thing I noticed yesterday that um was quite um, striking was the difference in the public reaction to the tear gas in two thousand and fourteen when tear gas was deployed by. The police really kicking off the the occupation, the umbrella movement, Um, there was a huge public outcry against that um, and and a very strong reaction. And arguably, that was the thing that brought even larger numbers of people out onto the streets. Perhaps, you know, sadly, five years later, that's become normalized. But there wasn't the same degree of, uh, you know, sadly, the same degree of surprise or outrage this time around, notwithstanding, uh, you know, Arguably much more coercive policing tactics used this time around. So um you know perhaps the, the the sad fact is that you know maybe Hong Kongers have gotten used to their police force behaving this way, and that um in itself is 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 a bit of an indictment.
1: And moving forward, what do you I mean I know it's always hard to predict the future, but what do you see as happening in the weeks to come? surely, all of this is going to make Hong Kong even more ungovernable for a chief executive who's extraordinarily unpopular. I mean, can she hang on? Or do you think this is, as was the case with Tung Shihua, he was so unpopular that he was forced to go? Will Beijing use her to get this through and then discard her?
5: Yeah, there, there are two historical parallels we can sort of look to. The first, as you as you just suggested, is Tung Chihua in 2003. Um, in the wake of the, the anti-Article 23 protests, um, that legislation was withdrawn. Regina Ip, who was the Secretary for Security at the time, resigned, and then Dong Hua resigned shortly after that. Um, and the other parallel is, of course, the Umbrella Movement, when CY Leung stuck to his guns, um, didn't budge an inch, um, refused to compromise, and um, and and ultimately, the the protests were, in that sense, a failure. Although arguably they succeeded in other in other ways. Um, hard to say at the moment which way this will this will go. I, I would observe that Carrie Lam was the chief secretary at the time of the Umbrella Movement, so she may be more inclined to follow the CY Leung approach. Although um, things I think have escalated much more this time around than they had then. Um, so there may be space for some kind of a face-saving compromise. And I think that would be really the best outcome, not just for um, all the parties involved, but for Hong Kong itself. If uh, the government and Beijing could find a way to uh, climb down in some way, uh, whether that just means uh, widening the consultation process, extending the, the, the period of time that this, is, that this is executed, rather than trying to ram it through in a matter of weeks. Um, and then potentially putting in some more safeguards into the laws or, or, or somehow watering it down to at least give something to the protesters. Because if they proceed on the, on the current trajectory of, of just you know, sticking to their guns and, and ramming it through in the next couple of weeks, I, I totally agree. It does um, put Hong Kong in, 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 a, in, a, in a terrible place in terms of the, the mood of the populace, the, the way that it's governed, and the way that it's perceived by the rest of the world.
1: To discuss yesterday's events, I'm now joined by Jeffrey Ngo, who's a PhD student in history at Georgetown, and he's also the chief researcher for Demosisto, a youth political grouping that advocates self-determination. Jeffrey, first of all, tell me about the mood amongst your members um, following yesterday's events. I know that you've condemned the police brutality. Do you see this as a crisis of the government's making? Uh, yes,
3: certainly. I mean, I think we, we we were all surprised by by the use of violence and uh, yesterday by the police and also how quickly, in general, the situation has escalated. on on June ninth, uh, obviously, there was a huge protest, a largely peaceful protest with one million people taking to the streets against the uh, proposed extradition bill uh, with China. And even before the uh, the the protest had officially ended, uh, the Carrie Lamb government put out a statement and said that uh, yes, she acknowledges that a lot of people have uh, come out against it, but still she was going to move ahead with the reading of the bill in the Legislative Council. The protesters have decided to uh, take it to the next step, um, and hence the reaction uh, from the police. Um, right now, you know, after one very intense day, it seems like um, things have calmed, calmed down slightly because. Um, the debate at the Legislative Council have been moved back slightly. Uh, we don't know whether tomorrow or the day after that the debate would resume, but it's sort of at a, at a, at a point where it's a stalemate right now. If they decide to move on in, in the Legislative Council, then I think the protests would e- erupt again.
1: I mean, it's not over, is it? Today in Admiralty, I was seeing trucks full of supplies being unloaded. So it seems clear that there are plans for more protests.
3: Yes, it's certainly not over, um, and it's not going to be over, I think, until Kerry uh, Lam decides to withdraw the bill, or uh, if it's passed, which is obviously something that no one, uh, no one wants to see, but it's not going to be as intense as what has happened yesterday, I mean, until we know um, when the next scheduled de- uh, debate will be uh, at the Legislative Council, because the idea is always to block the uh, legislators from entering the Legislative Council building um, since it's extremely difficult and I think it's, it's not very likely that protesters will be able to actually occupy the building itself. So the idea is to surround the the, the streets around the, uh, the, the building. So the action would depend on when we know the next um, debate will be.
1: I'm interested in the way that you're talking about this. In 2014, uh, at Occupy, uh, the people in Demosisto, uh, Joshua Wong, and Nathan Law—they were very much active players in events. And you're being very careful with your language here. You're not saying "we"; you're saying the protesters. What's changed?
3: Yeah, So uh, you know, as you were talking about, um, you know, Joshua Wong was former. Uh, leader of scholarism and uh, Nathan Law was a core leader in the Hong Kong Federation of Students. Those were the two largest groups in 2014, one sort of representing secondary school students, the other representing university students then, and they were very much uh, in the leadership of the umbrella movement along with the uh, Occupy Central leaders. Over the past five years, I think what we have seen in Hong Kong uh, generally is a move, a clear move toward being leaderless. And I think the idea of a leaderless movement has two sides to it. Um, On one side is that, um, you know, even with the umbrella movement, Hong Kongers have not been able to achieve genuine universal suffrage when it comes to our chief executive election. So many have questioned the need of nonviolent protests because it seems like Hong Kongers have already done everything possible um, in a nonviolent way, but still Beijing won't compromise. So there's a number of people who want to move toward more radical actions, um, while others, including myself and my colleagues, uh, continue to believe in active civil disobedience, but in a nonviolent way. So I think the crisis for the past two years have been that some people who advocate uh, violent actions have uh, been more hostile to what others uh, who advocate non-violent protests um, because they see us as sort of doing things that won't make a change. And similarly, I think I would say that some people on our side have also been equally hostile to others that advocate more radical actions because they see it as destroying the movement. What we do see now is we're all working toward one goal, and that is uh, to stop the extradition bill. And because of that, I think the civil society in Hong Kong have really come back together in in, in a good way because now I think different people and different groups are learning to work together in a way um, that allow each other to coexist.
1: So what you're saying is opposition to the extradition law has uh, unified what was a a splintered groups? Uh,
3: Definitely, definitely, because it's always easier for an opposition movement to oppose one thing rather than advocate one thing. And I would just like to add the other thing that I wanted to say is the legal repercussions of of, of being a leader because what we have seen um, in recent court cases, uh, whether in connection with events in 2014 or the Mong uprising in early 2016, is that if you are deemed a leader of a movement, you face much severe uh, punishment in the courts. Um, for charges like rioting. So the combination of the, the factors I mentioned above have, 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 have meant that generally the current movement against the extradition bill is largely leaderless. Um, I think some people and some groups are, are still more influential than others, but no single person can claim to monopolise um, the leadership of this movement. is very diverse, um, and I think in a, in a way that's good.
1: But is that not dangerous if there's no strategy there?
3: Um, I think um, not necessarily, because we don't know what strategy would work. So actually, allowing different people to try different things, um, diversify the movement, and allow different people to experiment different things. One of the lessons we have learned in 2014 is that having just one way to do things don't always work.
1: But it might trend towards more radical methods, more violence... Uh, I would
3: say that, uh, yes, the situation is escalating and has escalated as events yesterday have shown, but violence is more often than not perpetuated on the part of the the police uh, against protesters who are clearly um, uh, less armed. um, And I think the source of the violence uh, comes not from anyone uh, on the side of... Um, of trying to oppose the extradition bill, um, but on the side of Beijing, because they are trying to push forward this bill despite um, clear, um, you know, clear indications by Hong Kongers, whether in opinion polls or in the much bigger um, and, and and peaceful protest on Sunday, um, that that if Beijing continues to push forward this and ignoring. Um, efforts on our part to resist in a non-violent way, then I think it's Beijing that is making, you know, violence inevitable.
1: And I mean, how dangerous do you think this is for the government? Are they at risk of losing an entire generation if they push forward with this?
3: I, I think so. But it's also important to keep in mind that the chief executive since, you know, the Umbrella Movement has not been able to achieve its goal of genuine democracy, the chief executive is basically chosen by Beijing. And Carrie Lam is clearly a puppet of the Xi Jinping government in Beijing. So um, the source of her power or her successor's power comes not from the people of Hong Kong, but from the central government in China. So actually, I think um, if this extradition bill is passed... Um, Certainly, it is going to um, create more tension between the uh, government of Hong Kong and the people of Hong Kong, but it does not necessarily mean it's harder for future chief executives or Carrie Lam herself to govern because she is going to uh, have more legitimacy in the eyes of Beijing. So that's that's the difficulty, I think.
1: The legitimacy crisis will be her legitimacy over the people of Hong Kong, right?
3: I think that's true, yes. Um, But then the question to ask is that what real power would Hong Kongers have even when we clearly do not trust her? And it seems like, you know, we have done almost everything possible uh, right now uh, to try to stop this and and we're still not very sure whether the bill can be stopped indeed. So it's it's a different calculation probably on the part of Beijing and on her part um, because the police, as I said, is much better armed and the legislature obviously is skewed toward Beijing because of the functional constituency, meaning that only half of the legislature is directly elected by the people. So they have control over so many parts of Hong Kong society and Hong Kong establishment that it's going to be very difficult for us to um, you know, make a difference if we do not win this time
1: to me that's also disturbing because that sense of impotence means there's little left to lose I would say
3: yes and no Um, it would really really depend on I think the outcome of this fight because in the past you know I've been asked you you know yes one country two systems is dying but when was the point at which one country two systems is truly dead and usually I and I think many people have said this as well At that point is Article 23, uh, which is the notorious national security bill that the Hong Kong government tried to push forward once in 2003 uh, during the administration of Tung Chi Hwa, who is the first um, chief executive after 1997. Uh, Half a million people took to the streets then, and later he decided to withdraw the bill when several key swing votes from the pro-business Liberal Party decided not to support the bill. Um, Now, this time, uh, I agree with many who have said that the extradition bill is even worse than Article 23, and that is because even for Article 23, when you could be charged for crimes like, for for national security-related crimes like, you know, um, sedition or treason, you're tried in a Hong Kong court. If the extradition arrangements are are passed, then um, Hong Kongers... Are going to be charged in a Chinese court, so it's a completely different ball game. So I think um, if this is passed, then then probably there's not much left to lose. So that's the depressing thing. But I, I you know, I, I still think that there there's a chance that if the if the movement keeps going, uh, and most importantly with international pressure, um, I think there might be turning points.
1: And you went to visit Joshua Wong in prison yesterday, and. You were discussing the importance of the HKUS Policy Act. Uh, tell me about what difference that would make if that was to be reviewed.
3: We think that Hong Kong should not fight China alone. I think it, it, the international community has an obligation and has, has certainly has interest um, to keep Hong Kong's autonomy intact. So yesterday, when I was visiting Joshua in prison, we talked about uh, potential American responses to. Um, ongoing developments uh, here in Hong Kong and one of the things he said and which I agree is that the US uh, should really look into reviewing the policy act that you were talking about and under that law which was passed in 1992 um, Hong Kong and China would be seen as different territories for the purpose of US policy making but on the assumption that these two places meaning Hong Kong and China are indeed separate enough now if the extradition arrangements with china are passed um you know can it really be said that hong kong is sufficiently autonomous um you know in relation to china some people advocate a complete termination of this uh, arrangement i don't necessarily agree because i think that not viewing hong kong and china uh, as different polities actually risk isolating hong kong further from the international community but i think there you know there are options like you know selected sanctions or simply just a a a review of u.s policy more broadly on hong kong that does not place commercial interests at the center but you know human rights and democracy and other universal values at the center so there are a number of different options Um, And I think a a bipartisan group of uh, members of Congress are going to very shortly, either this week or the next, uh, reintroduce the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. When the bill is introduced, I look forward to seeing what's in there. And, and, and 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 obviously, Joshua as well, have been very glad to see the strong American response so far against the extradition bill, whether by you know Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and other political leaders. I think it's very important.
1: And finally as the former colonial ruler, do you think Great Britain is fulfilling its moral duties to Hong Kong at this moment in time?
3: At this particular moment I think it's very tough for for, for Britain uh, to pay that much attention to Hong Kong because it seems like they don't even know who the Prime Minister is. Um, you know, Theresa May has resigned and and all the British press is interested in is knowing whether Boris Johnson would probably be the next Prime Minister or who else. So uh, the UK government officially has issued a joint statement with the Canadian government against this extradition bill and I think uh, it's a welcoming um, statement for us because it shows that the UK is taking a stance. And I think um, the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, has also spoken out uh, in support of the protesters in Hong Kong and against the extradition bill. Um, but I think a much stronger response is needed. This ought not to be just about the extradition bill. This should be about China breaking an international agreement registered by the UN, and that is obviously the Sino-British Joint Declaration in 1984, because clearly China is not honouring its promise of one country, two systems, uh, and Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong as promised in that joint declaration, and um, the UK has uh, a moral responsibility you know, to keep that promise, uh, and I think there's so much more that London can do.
0: You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Thanks to our guests, Anthony Daperin and Geoffrey Noe, and all of the Hong Kong people who took the time to talk with us. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and feel free to leave us a glowing review somewhere. Our editing and research on this episode is by Julia Bergen and Andy Hazel. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and GIFs are
1: courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.